Welcome to Health Matters, Sonoma's weekly program devoted to health and well-being. Each week through interviews, editorials, and listener participation, we will explore topics and issues of contemporary medicine and its relationship to the lifestyles of our community. Our goal is to provide you with information and resources to help you achieve and maintain what you deserve, a happy, healthy, and productive life. I'm your host, Dr. Ned Hoke, a veteran in natural methods healthcare, speaking with you today from Sonoma Valley, California, for an hour of health topic digestion and discussion. Please stay with us. And welcome back to Health Matters, Dr. Ned Hoke, today joined by Sarah Dykeman and her new book, Bicycling with Butterflies. What a title. So... Uh, Sarah, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for chatting with me today. Well, it's a it's a pleasure. And and when I saw when I saw from the publicist this this book as available uh, possibility of t- getting a chance to visit with you, um, I had been uh, recently had had been in contact with a Joseph Rykoff, who is a German uh, academic who's written a book called The Disappearance of Butterflies. And I'd gotten into a dialogue with him about what that all meant. And his is a very, um, uh, you know, professorial discussion, but, but, but with much of the same heart that I read in, later in your book. And so I was particularly inspired because having, I say, like I say, beginning to develop a program because I wanted to develop a program for our listeners about the disappearance of butterflies. And I was kind of getting at it, coming at it in it. And Dr. Reichoff's work is very academic, and so I was eager to find a way to sort of humanize or to make more sort of at a lower level, she might say, of the discussion. And, of course, along comes your book, which is wonderful because (laughs) not only is it a lower level in the sense of not having to do with not any less of the integrity of the the topic, but with a a very um, consumer-friendly a, a picture to it, so uh, so <laughs> you've helped me just with that. So maybe uh, Sarah, we could start if you could just give us the 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 basic contours of what the the bicycling with butterflies book is about, and also the contours of the trip that it represents. Uh, that would be a place for for our listeners to get a, a handle on where we're going. Sure. So in 2017, I rode my bicycle from Michoacan, Mexico, in southern Mexico, where the Monarch Cluster, and people might have seen the overwintering sites in Mexico and seen the photos of of thousands of monarchs on on the same trees. And I rode my bike following them north and all the way to Canada. And this was on the eastern half of the United States, following the eastern population that extends from the Rocky Mountains to the Atlantic Ocean. And when I got to Canada, I wasn't done. I wanted to complete their entire migratory route, so I turned around and headed south. In total, my route took me 10,201 miles. It it took about eight and a half months. And about halfway through, I realized that there was a lot to say. And people were interested in, in hearing about the monarch and hearing about my trip and being connected to the adventure. And one of the things I did on my trip was my goal was to be a voice for the monarch and to tell as many people as I could 
not only that the monarch population is in decline, but that there is something all of us can do, which is to plant natives and to plant milkweed, the only food source for the monarch caterpillar. And so I just, I just saw that urgent need, and I saw that this, this is the time. And so I committed to writing a book about, about halfway through my trip. And then when I finished, I sat down and started, and I'd never written a book before. And it was a long process, and it feels like the monarchs guided my bike tour just about just like they've guided my book. So they, they were always in charge. They were always leading me, leading me down the path. Okay. Well, maybe we should describe, of course, many, many of us who grew up with monarchs, and they were part of our childhood. They're part of the joy of our childhood, part of the, the magic of our childhood, even. Uh, uh, the, of course, the, the world of butterflies is a much larger world than merely monarchs. So... But monarchs are certainly the are, are they I don't know they're the so give us in a sense of a your in your sense anyway of the monarchs of are they are they in fact the most prolific of the of the available butterflies for us here in the northern uh, northern America or is are do they share the space with a lot of other butterflies and they just this is simply the one you chose the monarchs share the space with lots of of other butterflies and moths and all sorts of other creatures. And in fact, I call monarchs gateway bugs because they're often the ones we first recognize, right? They're big, they're kind of floppy flyers, so right. you kind of get a chance to see them as they go. And they're, they do have a wide distribution. They have a wide range. And one of the things I love most about the monarchs is that when I was bicycling, I saw them in farm fields in Texas. I saw them in backyard gardens in Kansas. I saw them in school gardens in Omaha, and I saw them in New York City. And of course, I saw them all lots of other places. But my point being that they are anywhere that there are is habitat, and they don't need to have like the perfect, pristine wilderness land. They need pockets of natives so that they can go from, from site to site and complete their migration. And, and then I, I think I chose them because not, not for any, re, any one reason or the other, but they are the species with the mo that is the most well-known, and they do have this phenomenal migration. Mm -hmm. And the migration does set them apart from other butterflies. The eastern monarchs, like I said, spend their winter in Mexico, and it actually takes three to five generations to make that entire loop that reaches into Canada and then back into Mexico. And there's no other species, as far as I know, that has this multi-generational, multinational migration like the monarch does. Well, that's that's an incredible um, story in the sense that three to five generations, you just said. Now, it makes one wonder, how does that actually work? I mean, it's, so maybe you could take us through the life cycle of how, you know, describe for our listeners in, in a is in efficient ways, if you can, uh, the, you know, the, the caterpillar and all that, how does all that happen? And at the same time, the, the migration is in constant motion. Can you give us a feeling for that about how that, how that actually takes place? Yeah. So if you start in Mexico and you think about it, there's thousands of monarchs, millions of monarchs flying North and they scatter, they just, they kind of just spread out in Texas and all the females are looking for milkweed, the food source of the monarch caterpillar. And the females will each lay around 400 or so eggs, and they'll lay one per milkweed, 
typically, so that when that egg hatches, it hatches into a caterpillar, and the caterpillar is an eating machine. They'll grow 2,000 times bigger in about two weeks, which I always tell folks, because that doesn't sound incredible until you put it on the human scale, and it's like, that would be like me eating enough to go from 150 pounds today to 300,000 pounds in two weeks. Like, that's their job is to eat, and they eat milkweed, and then those monarchs go from egg to caterpillar to chrysalis to adult. And while this is happening, all of their the parents, the monarchs that left Mexico, have died. And so these eggs born in in Texas, in southern United States, now, they're excuse, called the first me, generation. Have they died of old age, or have they died of just being tired exactly. of flying, or old age? A combination of all. And in fact, so when I was bicycling with them, the monarchs that I was bicycling with in, into Texas were just these really tattered adults. They were mm-hmm. faded. They had mm-hmm. lost their a lot of their orange. They often had bites and pieces missing from them from predation attempts. And then the next generation is born, and they are just this brilliant orange. And and this the the generations that follow, those monarchs also mate. They also lay eggs. And they only live about a month. And during that time, they're laying their eggs. But the but what you what you mentioned about um, how I was following them and, and seeing them in different places is because they're spreading out. There's eggs everywhere, and each egg is going to have a slightly different amount of time to metamorphose because they're cold-blooded. So an egg that's laid in a shadier spot will take a little longer to develop than an egg in a sunny spot when the weather's really nice. And so we kind of start to get some overlap, and it's not like every monarch is going to be born on the same exact day. And then the females are laying eggs throughout their entire life from about day three to the end of their life, which is usually two to two to four weeks. Mm-hmm. And so you're starting to just get a lot of a lot of different things happening, and and so there's you you can you can find adults and you can find eggs and caterpillars and chrysalids all at the same time. Wow, that's a that's a huge that that's a huge that's a huge turnover of 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 life of life forms. And of course, for our listeners, uh, we're talking to Sarah Dykeman and her new book called "Bicycling with um, uh, Butterflies: My Ten Thousand Two Hundred One Mile Journey Following the Monarch Migration." So, Sarah, we've been just discussing as you've kindly given us some some feeling for what it was like to actually. Uh, that is what what the monarch busy, was busy doing, and you've told us that there are multiple generations in in process. So, is it your sense of then that the that the monarch migration is something that's really essentially a constant motion? In other words, it's not as though you know you and I might go someplace and then we park ourselves someplace and, and then we just turn around and decide to go some go back to where we came from. But this is a constant, constant uh, life form in motion. So it's almost there's there's really not individuals. I mean, there are individuals in the sense that they're individual bodies, but that the life force itself really is a situation of constant um, motion in in the migration. Is that a fair statement? I, I think that is. And in fact, I'll sometimes describe the migration as its own thing, right? The migration is this phenomenon. Right. So there's the monarch, and then there's the monarch migration. And I think you are right. The, the monarch migration has a, a kind of a, a character of its own. And in fact, from year to year, you can there's a, an amazing website called Journey North where people will track monarchs. And you can kind of watch as 
monarchs from year to year spread out because you'll see where people are, are citing them and you'll watch that that migration flows like a creature as you're saying and each year it flows a little differently and at a different quite a, a different pace and it is like a living organism in itself right well for those of us who who follow birds at all of course we and we watch birds in 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 flight you know in groups and so on you can see as they move together you that you no longer it's easy to not think of them as individuals but to think of them as a whole thing as a, in, in themselves. And so I guess I was sort of asking, did you feel the same way about the monarchs? And I think you just said that's true. So, um, yeah. And, but I, but I, if I could interrupt, I would no, also please. say I felt also the, the extreme opposite, which was sometimes I would be on my bike and I'd spot a caterpillar and I'd stop and it would, the entire migration would disappear and it would just be that one caterpillar that I would be thinking about. And I would imagine their grandparents and their great-grandparents and their great-great-grandparents. And I would just see this beautiful story of this one butterfly. And I would think if someone in Texas hadn't planted that milkweed or if someone in Kansas hadn't planted milkweed, then the monarch I'm seeing today wouldn't exist. And I could really focus in on one. And, and that was really powerful too. Absolutely. But since you you brought up milkweed, this is maybe a good time for our listeners to understand and get a, a story from you about milkweed and kind of how critical a piece this is in this whole wonderful story. So please tell us the story of milkweed and and is this something that we we want to do in our gardens or is it is it a is it a pest for some people? Tell us about milkweed. It has a terrible name, milkweed. Right? It doesn't sound beautiful. I wish that it was called like like mother to orange wings, because <laughs> the milkweed is paramount to the migration. In fact, the equation is very simple. No milkweed equals no monarchs. Mm. And the milkweed has evolved with the monarchs in this really spectacular way. And like I said, the females will lay one egg typically per milkweed plant, and the caterpillars will eat that. And while they're eating the milkweed, they're actually sequestering or storing the milkweed's toxins in their own bodies. And they're actually becoming toxic themselves, and that is the way that the monarch defends itself. So, and a monarch adult is bright orange, and that's a warning to potential predators, hey, don't eat me. And it's because when I was a caterpillar, or when the monarch was a caterpillar, they ate the toxic milkweed. Mm -hmm. And there's all these little details that go into the milkweed-monarch relationship that are fascinating. But it, it, it truly is, they're completely connected. No milkweed, no monarch. Well... So for those of us, I mean, I grew up around milkweed in, in terms of my childhood, and, and, but I never, I, it was always kind of a weed, hence the word weed. Um, so, mm -hmm. but you're talking about planting it, and you're talking about planting it for the, for the, specifically for monarch food. So talk a little bit about that in terms of how, wh wh what do you advise when people, you're, you're visiting a, a school or you're visiting an environment where they're saying, well, we'd like to support the monarch uh, process, how, what what advice do you give them about milkweed, how to plant it, or not just how to plant it in, in the physical sense, but like how does how to conceive of it in terms of, of as part of a garden? Or So tell us about that part of it, if you would. So the, like you said, milkweed is called a weed, and often that's because it, it can be pretty prolific, and it's actually a pretty it's a pretty hardy plant if you can give it the space to grow. Right. And I think that's a great thing. And in fact, there's my favorite species of milkweed and is 
called common milkweed, which is, again, a terrible boring name for this really <laughs> glamorous plant. It has these purple, like, um, blossoms that are like a, a cluster of shooting, shooting stars, and the blossoms smell amazing. But when I'm going from place to place, rather than me trying to learn, like, the, the specific exact species that grow best in each zone, I often will refer people to native plant societies mm-hmm. or to local nurseries. There's a incredible movement to plant natives and return return North America to to native plants and animals. And you'll be surprised if you start looking at the resources that are available. And I just tell folks, start with a couple plants. Pick a corner of your yard. Usually milkweed usually likes a sunny area. Pick that spot. Plant some milkweed, plant some nectar plants, some native other plants for the nectar or the flowers so that the adults have food. And then every year celebrate the monarch by adding more and more. And and don't be scared to to plant in your front yard. I stayed with a woman in Columbia, Missouri, who had the most brilliant front yard garden. It was just an oasis for animals. Mm. And one of my favorite parts of this of visit her visit was I saw some milkweed in her neighbor's yard and I asked her about it and she said, Yeah, my neighbors used to mow everything down. But <laughs> right. then I told them that the monarch is the monarch needs milkweed, and so now the neighbors mow around my milkweed. And I thought, oh, this is, so, this is just such a beautiful, perfect story, right? Like the way that we get our ideas across is to educate people and is to tell as many people as possible. And the more we can spread our ideas, the more the milkweed has a chance to spread. Well, that's what so, we're. That's what we're. That's it's what, a fun adventure. That's what we're doing here today, basically. And and of course, this program is aired during the day when children have just come home from school, typically. And so we hope that 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 our children and that the children and the parents of the children and the people who are, uh, you know, managed to t- tune in to join us uh, will be able to be inspired by this particular conversation because we we certainly those of us who in the in the area that we are in Northern California are really, uh, we are very sensitized to the, 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 the loss of, of support for the pollinators on, on all kinds of levels. And so th- that, that, and of course, for those of us who grew up with milkweed and, and re- remember our mothers thinking of it as an invasive in <laughs> plant mm-hmm. ra- rather than something that you, that you wanted, it's, it's quite a change of mind about, about what milk, milkweed is. So, I'm happy that we've had a chance to visit briefly about that. So coming back to your, you know, your passions and so on, we're speaking to Sarah Dykeman and her new book, uh, Bicycling with Butterflies. Sarah, we actually need to take a break. We need to have you be just nice and quiet for about 20 seconds to give our technicians a chance to find the break in the, uh, the audio file. So we'll be back with you in just a moment. And Sarah, please stay with us. And welcome back to Health Matters Radio. Dr. Netho today joined by Sarah Dykeman and her uh, interesting new book called Bicycling with Butterflies. Now, one of the things that that was so touching to me right at the beginning of the book was kind of the way you set the story up. I mean, of course, the the uh, the, the body of that that is the the the, you know, the middle of the book and talk in terms of the trip itself was also very exciting. But I kind of wanted to to now that we've talked about the sort of general topic as 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 such, I was hoping we could sort of dive back into into going down to Mexico and and t- sharing with our listeners about you know your kind of how it was to to work with 
Brianda and and those at the at the site that where the the overwintering site is. So maybe tell us about the place in Mexico, kind of where it is, and kind of how the butterflies hang out there in the winter in the winter time, if you would. I'd love to. So I traveled by bus the first time to central Mexico, and I went to the state. It's actually the there's a monarch biosphere reserve, and in there are are colonies of monarchs, and four of those colonies are open to the public, and the biggest one is called El Rosario, and that was the first one that, that I went to. And one of the rules at the overwintering sites is that you have to have a guide, and that's to protect the monarch and the people. And it just so happened that when I showed up, my guide was this was this young woman about my age named Brianda, and she took me up to the see the monarchs for the first time, and it was glorious. It was a cold day. They were the monarchs were were not moving. They were just hanging from the tree branches, and I definitely had to like do a double take because I was like, wait, wait, that that's what they look like. <laughs> but on my way back down, I was talking to Brianda about about my trip, and I was I explained to her that I had come to Mexico several months before the the spring migration started. And I was just looking for opportunity, so I had no plan, but I knew that something would happen. I knew I would, I would find that right connection, and it just happened that Brianda was that connection. She actually invited me to stay at her house. She lives a few a few miles from El Rosario, and she was a guide, and she walked there about or six days a week. And I ended up living at her house, and I would walk with her every day to work for for a while, and then we'd walk home, and her mom was there to greet us with just the most wonderful cooking and I just felt like the luckiest person in the world. And in doing that, I really got to get to know not just the, not just the monarchs and it was awesome and wonderful to see the monarchs day in and day out. So I got to see them not just when it was cold and they were hanging from the clusters, but when they erupt in the sunshine and you can hear their wings flapping. And then I also got to know the folks around Mexico that are protecting the monarchs by being guides, by patrolling the forest. Yeah, yeah. Tell us, tell us, tell us about that because I think that maybe that may be of also interest to our listeners. Because of course, this is a unique situation where the the uh, Mexican government has taken the, taken up the the challenge of providing uh, uh, strictures and an organization to the to, to protect the whole world of, of monarchness, if you will. So, t- share with us also some of the sort of official way that this is organized? Well, I think the first thing to note is that the Monarch Biosphere Butterfly Reserve is land that is has a, a kind of assorted history, but it is, it is government-owned land that's basically been given to the Mexican people in it to work. And so it's not like a national park here where no one lives in it. It's this land is the livelihood for so many people, and mm-hmm. uh, and that livelihood came first and foremost from logging. And because the monarchs need an intact forest to have the right climate and to have the right protection from snowstorms or or too cold of extra cold nights, we need to protect that forest. So the government is looking to find ways like tourism to sustain the people and the monarch at the same time, and it's a delicate balance. And I think they're doing a great job, and I think it's. I think that so much, so much of the time, the conversation on how to protect the monarch falls solely in the hands 
of these these people in Mexico that are living off this land. And it's always like, oh, the, there's no mon- or there's a monarch declines because of logging in Mexico, and that that is part of the problem that people are finding solutions for. But I like to kind of take a broader view and see that it's also because there's no milkweed or there's less milkweed. Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. one of the things that I think is so important and such an important lesson the monarch teaches us is that the monarch is not Mexican, not from the United <laughs> States, right. and is not can- Canadian. The, right. the monarch is North American, and the, the monarch needs every North American to, to give them a future. Mm-hmm. Well, you, spe- you were speaking of the trees that they live on in the, in, in the wintertime. One of the things you say that's very interesting, you say that the tree trunks absorb heat each day and it acts as a, a, a warm water bottles to the monarch. So maybe describe a little bit, because for our listeners, in the town where I live on the West Marin coast, um, we actually had had a grove where the monarchs would, would winter. So we could actually just go into the grove and we could see the very thing that you described where they would just be parked. They, they were there parked and they would, they weren't moving. They weren't, they weren't doing it. They were just hanging out there, you know, living in a protected environment. And of course, much to our sadness, many of them are no longer there. But um, so describe the situation actually uh, where, what, you know, the, the, what am I, I lost my thread there a little bit, but just describe a little, maybe a little bit about the process that they, well, not process, but the environment that they live, they live in. We just talked about a minute ago, that is, I read your, from your book, I read about the, the trees being warm during the day and then keeping them warm at night. Describe, the, give us a visual picture of what it's like to stare up at the, the monarchs. What do they look like when they're, when they're parked there? That's where I was trying to go. Right. Actually. So uh, the the monarchs <laughs> the monarchs spend their winter in this uh, forest that's about ten thousand feet above sea level. It's primarily pines and a type of fir called the Oyamel fir, mm-hmm. and it's this perfect balance of not too hot and not too cold, mm-hmm. and also not too dry and not too humid. And the trees are actually fundamental for this balance. So as you were saying. At night, the temperatures can get very low, and in order to avoid the most extreme colds, the monarchs have a few strategies. And one is they cluster in the canopy, and the canopy of the of the pines and oyamels will actually form like a blanket to kind of lock in the heat of the day, so that at night it's not too cold. And then also during the day, the tree trunks will absorb heat, and so at night, that little extra difference will be will, could be enough to to keep them alive for those extra cold nights. And then the tree tr- the trees also create a canopy like that acts like an umbrella. So there will be a few, there often can be an, a rain event or a snow event, not super frequent, but when it does happen, monarchs are much more likely to survive if they can stay dry. And so the canopy can act like an umbrella. So if you think about it, anytime you remove a tree, you're punching a hole in the blanket and the umbrella, and that can cause serious problems for the monarchs. But it's this really perfect balance, and some people might think, oh, well, it's great. There's, you know, the climate's warming up. Now they don't have to be too worried about cold. Well, of course that's not how it works because the monarchs need to stay cold because they're cold-blooded. And if the, if the temperature warms, their bodies also warm and they become more active. And an active monarch flies around. It's super beautiful, but they also use a lot of their energy. And there's not enough flowers in Mexico 
in the colonies to feed all of the monarchs. So they rely on their fat reserves that they've gained on their fall migration. And then they rely on those fat reserves and they rely on being inactive. Mm -hmm. And so you can see how there's just all these little puzzle pieces that, that connect them and link them and make it possible. And I just, I'm just blown away that, that it's, that it happened. <laughs> and then you add to that a monarch that's born in the fall will find that forest in Mexico from Canada, possibly, without have ever having been there before. And so it just gets getting more and more incredible the more you learn about them. Well, it's, it seems mystical, really, in, 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 a, in, a, in, a, in a wonderful, exciting way. And, of course, for though anybody that pays attention to nature at all closely, these mysticism shows up on lots of places, and this is just simply a, a very big... Um, uh, large size poster of of the of the mysticism of nature really seems to me, but um, going on in the again in the beginning of your book, uh, you you mentioned about the hazards of Roundup and how significant that is. So tell our listeners what your sense of that is in terms of Mexico, in terms of the United States, and so on. Because we're you know we're in we're those of us who care about these matters, we're in the thick of the battle about Roundup and things like that. So. Maybe we should spend at least a few minutes talking about that, some of the hazards of, of which Roundup being one of them. Right. So if you think about the monarch's route, especially they would go straight up through the Midwest, and that used to all be prairie. Mm -hmm. And then we started cultivating the land and growing crops. And in fact, that was actually pretty good for, for milkweed because a lot of times milkweed is a disturbance species especially common milkweed. So the, when people plowed, the common milkweed did really well. And, and so monarchs did okay. And then in the, in the 90s, it, we started um, introducing broad-spectrum herbicides. And so before, the, the corn would be planted, the corn might be sprayed, and then it would be planted, but it couldn't be sprayed afterwards because it would kill the corn. So the corn and the milkweed could grow up together. Mm -hmm. Well, once we could have, we had especially GMO corn, then that corn was resistant to the herbicides. So the, they would spray after the corn had come up. And so it would, the corn would survive, but not the milkweed. And so all of a sudden, all this habitat where we had been sharing the land with our corn and the milkweed, it became unusable. And we lost so much milkweed, like just, in in a quick succession in a matter of a matter of years and now look, the majority of corn and soybeans are grown with GMO seeds that use broad spectrum herbicides and so we're no longer sharing the land with the monarch mm -hmm. and I visited farms that were doing things different so that's not the only way there are solutions to these to these issues and there are other ways we just have to be willing especially as consumers to find those those farms that are doing things different and supporting them. Well, that's one of the one of the goals that I think you had as you describe in your book about about uh, having lessons and conversations with people when it, it, it did a bunch of education. So maybe we could begin to uh, sort of segue into sort of some of the larger picture of what you're doing, uh, Sarah Dykeman, because you're this is you know, your the book is not the whole picture. You know, or you, in fact, you have a th you have a whole thing called Beyond the Book. So maybe for our listeners' benefit, we could start talking a little bit about what Beyond the Book is and kind of how that 
that that concept is is uh, working. That this book is 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 part of that, but the, the beyond part. Let's start talking about your your <laughs> website and kind of where that is yeah. going. Because you yeah, ta- I definitely picked the name. Be- oh, sorry, no, no. I picked the name Beyond a Book before I thought I'd ever write a book. <laughs> <laughs> really? But the the idea still stands, right? Oh, the, okay, the idea okay, is okay. you can you can learn a lot from reading a book, and mm-hmm. in fact. Before every adventure I've ever gone on, I've read books to kind of get prepared. Right. But there's only so much you can learn from books. And so when I, what I hope is that people will read my book and they'll get excited about butterflies and biking even. And then they'll go and they'll either go on a bike ride or they'll grow a garden or they'll crawl around a roadside ditch. And that's where the real connection will come. Mm. So the book is sort of like a guide. It's sort of like... Well, hey, go in this direction, and then you need to you need to dive into the into the into the weeds, if you will. And so this is my fifth big adventure, and each adventure is about connecting people to the world. So, like my my last trip was was actually in a canoe. I canoed from this um, from a, a mountaintop. Well, I started by walking, but a mountaintop in Glacier <laughs> National Park on the continental continental divide and then i walked until i could put a canoe in a creek and then i followed that creek to the gulf of mexico via the missouri and mississippi river and along the way i presented to kids well with my team and i we presented to kids about the river and so often my adventures will have a focus like the river or the monarch and of course you're focused on one thing but the whole world is there for you and so the more you know, as I'm as I'm looking for monarchs, I'm discovering the entire world. But the monarch again is kind of the lead, is kind of the guide, hmm. bringing me out and giving giving me something, giving me a goal. Well, you you describe it <coughs> as adventure linked education. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about the uh, the the well. There's a the, the words sort of tell you what it is, but how are you effectuating that in terms of are you then asking what school systems and other other areas to to invite you to come and do presentations tell us about how you're activating adventure you're obviously doing it as you're doing it en route is so to speak is and is that the main expression of this adventure linked education or are you setting up a larger p- pattern of adventure linked education and trying to grow you know grow a larger business tell us a little bit about that if you would well I, my my initial goal was to just bring in adventures to classrooms. Mm-hmm. And so for my my trip to the butterflies, it was about stopping at schools. And I actually presented at, near, at I think, 49 schools mm-hmm. and uh, to, to nearly 9,000 people about my trip. And it was about, it was about giving kids um, access to adventure, to science and also just to see a real life person that's doing this. Like I'm not anything special. I'm not, I was never the fastest or the strongest or the bravest. I just happened to get on my bike and go. And I want kids to see that. I want kids to know that just because it hasn't been done before, doesn't mean it's not possible. And, and just because it's not status quo, doesn't mean it, it, it can't be what, what you want to go for. Mm-hmm. And the, the the great thing about my butterfly trip especially was that there is just this brilliant connection of people. And so I would go where the energy was. And so I actually didn't, I never really was the one asking schools about, about coming. I would 
someone would hear about it, they would contact their school or they would be a teacher, they would be a student and they would they would rally and they would make it happen and then they'd say, Hey, can you please come? And I'd look at my map and I'd say, Okay, that's all, that only adds a hundred miles or whatever and and so I would I would go to them that way. Mm-hmm. And it was one of the things that I realized is the the more I gave my voice to the monarch, the more I tried to use my energy and my time to help protect the monarch, the monarch helped me and gave me so many gifts, including at every school I was given an opportunity to stay at someone's house and to have a warm home cooked meal and the reciprocity that went that was between the monarch and I was so fulfilling and so profound that I just feel like I, I owe everything to the monarch, including my book. Wow. Well, that <laughs> I'm sure the monarch is, 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 is equally grateful. So, uh, well, I think we've, we, we, we have to spend at least a couple minutes talking about the bike and some of the, it's, our listeners are going to wonder, particularly for the thousand miles between the, where you started in the uh, uh, mountains of Michoacan and the uh, the border of the United States, I mean they're going to imagine that following the monarchs is is on a bike is 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 kind of close to the sort of some kind of wild thing that some guy wants to go to the South Pole or I mean it, it's so incredible <laughs> to imagine someone would do what you've done so and as you as you as I read the book and, and looked at some of the pages and you know you could the way you write uh, Sarah is you you can for those of us who, who get on a bike once in a while and and you know know what it's like to f- the to deal with the potholes and so on so you you've you've taken this incredible uh, effort on on this very uh, simple bike, uh, you tell us a, a little bit about the bike, and then give us maybe one road story before we we need to go, of course. But we give us one bike story that that you that you enjoy telling because I think it's so still so fantastic. I think for our listeners to imagine someone, particularly in in, in Mexico, who's riding on these uh, trails, and then of course you do tell early in the in the book you talk about you know. Sh- roads that end up nowhere and things like that so yeah give us give us a little taste of the bike itself and then give us a little story about some of the, just the heart no, I, I don't want to call it hardships because the way you the way you write about it you write about it as i don't know the grist for the mill but in a in a in a positive way it's a you 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 feel that that you're riding on, on dirt roads in mexico is actually kind of a, a glorious thing it is glorious, you know, and the, 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 the days that are the hardest, my strategy for surviving, getting through the day is thinking, this is going to be a good story. Like, I'll never forget this. <laughs> wow. Um, right. But as you said, my bike is, um, it's nothing special, but it's not very special to me. It's an old steel mountain bike, and I, it has panniers on it, which are bags. And in fact, my rear panniers are made from old kitty litter buckets. And so it's it's got the very a very homemade look. Um, I describe it as a combination of garage sale and like junkyard. But it's important to me actually to just use what I have around me. We don't need the most fancy equipment. We don't need to buy everything new all the time. And in fact, having something that's old and w- well worn and comfortable is much more advantageous on a long ride than a fancy bike that you're always worried about breaking or getting stolen or or whatnot. Right, and the, the bike has proven proven 
proven itself to me time and time again. And, and like you said, Mexico was probably the, the hardest part of my trip physically. Um, there, I took a lot of dirt roads. There was a lot of climbing. The monarchs tr- follow the Sierra Madre Mountains, and the roads don't. So it was a lot of go down to the desert, find a road, climb back up the mountain, go back down the other side, turn or find another road that goes back up. So I did a lot of climbing. And I'm reminded of a day that I woke up super early in the desert and started climbing uphill. And about th- about three hours of climbing later, I was feeling pretty smug. And I sat at the top of the mountain and had my mango snack and some water. And then I was like, okay, let's go down the other side. And I got back on my bike and I rounded the corner and my heart just broke because I was not at the top. And in fact, that day I rode uphill for about seven hours. So I, I, when I celebrated that first quote up or top of the hill, I was not even halfway done. And I get to the top and I'm just completely beat. But then, of course, I had the downhill and the downhill is just glorious. I, I covered the same distance in a matter of minutes. 45 miles an hour, just like wind in my hair, just perfectness. So you always have, as soon as things get too hard, there's like a moment of glory that keeps you going. Uh And I saw a monarch on that hill on the way down, so that was extra special. Fantastic, fantastic. Well, for our listeners who want to follow you in terms of, you know, the future of your work and so on, because it's such interesting. I mean, you're, you're obviously, you know, in... In, in in a very large motion way you you're 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 bringing together people i i gather from your website that you're you're gathering together people for more adventures so this is not the last adventure so for, give our listeners your website I, no it's not give give our li, 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 my website is sorry my website is beyondabook.org and the the adventures keep coming and for now my book is is the adventure but i've got lots of ideas spinning in my head all right. Well, Sarah Dykeman, what a pleasure to have you on Health Matters Radio from Sonoma, California. You've you've given us a, a really delightful taste of 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 a, of a truly great adventure that you obviously are the you know the the leader of and the 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 sole participant. But by you writing the book and by spending time with us and spending time with so many people that you've been giving educational. Uh, informations to you you've been able to share a, a magic with us so we thank you so much for taking the time yeah thanks for inviting me on okay be well and and on onward and onward and welcome back to health matters dr nidhoff we just had a nice visit with sarah dykeman and her her new book called uh, bicycling with butterflies and I, as I was saying to Sarah earlier in the program, one of the things that inspired me about her book was a, a book that I had also asked for to review by Dr. Joseph Rykoff, um, who wrote a book called The Disappearance of Butterflies. And what I wanted to do was, and, and uh, regular listeners will remember, I read a little bit of this uh, recently, but I'm going to follow up Sarah's visit with us uh, with some more from uh, Dr. Rykoff's book, This is from the introduction. In the last 10 years, our moth and butter populations have declined by more than 80%. Perhaps only older people recall the time when meadows were filled with colorful flowers and countless butterflies fluttered above. No one would have thought of, of wanting to count them. Why would you? Butterflies belong to the summer, just like bees and wildflowers. Larks sang from early spring until midwinter. 
midsummer, excuse me, they would uh, sing from first light and sus- suspended in the air over the fields. There were yellow uh, yellow hammers and partridges and hares. Frogs lived in the ditches and the ponds in the 1970s. Tree frogs still called loudly from a pond near my home at the edge of the fields. And their chorus was audible throughout the, uh, the verandas uh, during Veranda door, door during the telephone interviews with the um, teachers. The topic proceedings of the Bavarian District Court regarding noise pollution uh, caused by frogs. <laughs> How about that? Noise pollution caused by frogs. <laughs> I became familiar with the butterflies when I was a child. I saw dozens of large swallowtails with their distinct black lattice over pale yellow wings. They flew our, into our vegetable gardens and lay their eggs on carrot leaves. Their green caterpillars with red spots gave me a particular pleasure when I discovered them weeks later. If I touched them near the front, they would shoot out the strangest yellow forked from, from a uh, wrinkled behind the head. They emitted a peculiar odor that I later learned was a deterrent. Um, blues of various species, which I could not, not tell apart at the time, flew over the, w- w- the meadows that stretched from our little house to the edge of the village, to the woodland along the river. The shimmering blue butterflies were so abundant that looking back, I could not even estimate how many there were. One barely noticed the cabbage whites. They were part of the nature that surrounded us, like the chirping of the uh, field crickets in May and June and the chirping of the grasshoppers in midsummer. I used to enjoy tickling the field crickets out of their burrows with a stem of grass. Their husky, brawny-looking heads amused me. Uh, they did not seem to be much going on there. They were so easily tricked. So this is describing, I'm now no longer reading I'm from the introduction, this is describing a, a childhood of a, a man who went on to become one of the really great uh, uh, butterfly researchers in Europe. Uh, and I wanted to just say a few words from his book because what we're trying to do with this program and remind everyone, and Sarah, Sarah Dykeman is reminding everyone, that the, the des- it's desirable to have butterflies. It's desirable to have milkweed. It's desirable to have nature in our lives. Thank you again for joining us on Health Matters Radio. It's been a pleasure to be with you again. Until next time, I bid you well.